Well, it's good to be uh, with you today in chapel, and we also invite the, the crowd in McKenna who would be uh, joining us at this time. And um, you heard the scripture read this morning, and I want to speak about entire simplification. It's not a misprint. It's an intentional uh, title choice there. Life can be complicated and is complicated. I apologize ahead of time for some of the syllabi that you all will be receiving throughout this semester. Uh, They look, some of them, I'm sure, like the uh, wiring diagrams for a nuclear power plant. Um, And God will help you weed your way through them. Uh, I remember when I took a trip to Australia some years ago, I was being hauled around by a young Australian who fashioned himself to be a race car driver. And he was zooming around the side streets of Sydney, and I was there on the wrong side of the, in the front seat, and he was driving, and every time he turned a corner and came to an intersection and zoomed through it, all of my instincts were opposite. And I was fending myself off from what I was sure it would be head-on collisions as we came around this corner, that corner, the other corner. And I suspected at some point I would need to drive. We were there for about two and a half weeks, and I began thinking, how will I ever survive uh, this, this encounter here? And finally, after reflecting on it for some time, a simplicity dropped into my mind that just sort of solved the problem. And that was, I simply need to keep my body as close as I can to the center line of the road. That simplified everything for me. My uh, daughter and my wife, I didn't know they were going to do this, this has been uh, several years ago, took my uh, precious little geo prism out to teach my daughter how to drive a stick shift. I didn't know this, and I wasn't in the car, and I'm glad they didn't wreck it and tear it up. They almost did. My daughter never could get all the directions and instructions through her mind coordinated, and so she was the car was lurching and jumping back and forth and stalling out at every intersection she came to. And she came to a slight incline where there was a stop sign, where, of course, it's worse. And there she was. The car was lurching and stalling and lurching and stalling and lurching and stalling. Again, I'm so glad I didn't know it at the time. But a, a farmer who had pulled his pickup truck behind to, to, at that stoplight rolled his window down and stuck his hat out and hollered, you gotta give it gas. And my daughter reports that that one instruction just paved the way and she became a stick shift driving pro pretty soon after that. There are some simplifications that really do bring illumination to, uh, to, our, to our world. And especially in the spiritual life. I didn't expect John Oswald to be here today, but I was uh, blessed often by reading through his commentary uh, on the book of Isaiah, and he can correct me if he wishes, but I think that over and over and over and over again throughout that book, really from beginning to end, there is a message that comes clear, and that is, I'll summarize it this way, trust God alone. And in a sense, everything else is footnote that. Trust God alone. And so we come to a passage in Galatians, 
And Paul here is dealing with one of the most troublesome, dangerous, critical circumstances of any church to whom he writes. The Galatians were on the precipice of falling off. There was a profound misunderstanding of the gospel itself. And, lured by circumcision, they were thinking of plunging back into putting themselves under the Mosaic law in its ritual and ethnic particularities, but again, especially through circumcision. And in, 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 in essence, Paul has to ask them, or really warn them and command them, don't walk according to the halakha, the commands, the particularities of the Mosaic law. But then the question emerges, how then shall we walk? What shall then be our manner of living? And he has an answer for that that I want to present to you in terms of three simplicities that seem to bring, in my mind, things to a kind of satisfying and beautiful singularity. The three simplicities are these. There's a simple war, there's a simple goal, and there's a simple source. It's that. There's a simple war, there's a simple goal, and there's a simple source. First of all, the simple war. Now, I appreciate the chapel committee and the way they send out a, uh, an inquiry to every chapel speaker and say, is there any version of the Bible you would prefer to have read? And I know that here we use the, the NRSV, and uh, the Bible of my habit in use is the RSV. Both of these versions actually are um, uniquely in error in interpreting 516, uh, Galatians 5.16. Um, I'll read to you my, my RSV, which is similar to the new RSV here. And I do this hesitantly because I don't want to plant this in your mind, but I can't, I can't fix it apart from planting it in your mind. So here it is, 516. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. What we have here is the presentation, at least as the RSV translates it, of a double warfare, two fronts to be, you might say, engaged in simultaneously. There is the walk by the Spirit, that's one thing, and while we're doing that, we've got to be engaged in apparently a rear guard battle against the flesh, which is nipping at our heels, and so there we are with two foci to work upon. Now to be sure, there are other places in Scripture that do speak of the wisdom of the spiritual life as a double warfare. Uh, Paul himself, in other places, speaks of uh, not only putting off and casting off and putting to death the works of the flesh and the works of darkness, but at the same time putting on the garment of, of light. And so there is a wisdom in having a double focus. But I think here with Paul in Galatians 5.16, we have a deeper wisdom given to us, a deeper simplicity, and it comes actually by seeing what is happening with the Greek which I would say 95% of versions I know of have seen and understood and have interpreted accurately. There is a peculiar construction. Uh, ou, me, there's a two negatives in Greek, followed by the verb, the Greek verb, in the aorist subjunctive. Ou, me, plus the aorist subjunctive. And that formation basically has a name. One can call it the emphatic future denial. It is not a command. It is a declaration of something that cannot change 
and will not be changeable. Jesus uses this as reported in Matthew when he says, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words, who may, plus the error subjunctive, will never, paraphrase it all you want, Paraf- cannot, uh, never, never, never pass away. Slip that here and what we have is a very interesting and a profound simplification of the Christian's focus in walking uh, rightly with God. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and guess what? There ain't no way you can, at the same time, be following the desires of the flesh. That is a remarkable statement to make. So remarkable that he has to follow it up with an explanation in the very next verse, the Greek conjunction gar, for, and now here's the basis for that uh, amazing claim, for the uh, Spirit is urging us in a direction completely opposite, diametrically opposite what the flesh desires. The Spirit is urging us, if we use points of a compass, to walk northward. The flesh is urging us to walk southward. And because these two are irreconcilably opposed to each other, that's why he can, he can issue this. Actually, it's a form of promise. Send, set your hearts upon. Open your hearts to. Respond with a yes after yes after yes to the Spirit. And guess what? One will not be, absolutely cannot be fulfilling the other voice, the voice of the flesh that charges in our direction. Now, there is a misunderstanding that easily creeps in here. Um, I would say that most every Christian I know would say, yes, the flesh wants me to go that way. The Holy Spirit wants us to go that way. These two are completely opposed to each other. They are opposite forces. And the illegitimate conclusion that many people draw is that these are opposite and therefore equal forces, and that we are left in a stalemate, we find ourselves unable to move one way or the other, and we cannot actually fulfill the desire of the Spirit as the Spirit called, because we're being equally and oppositely opposed by the flesh. Uh, Believe it or not, back when I was going through high school, the state of South Carolina allowed high school seniors to drive school buses. That's worth a pause right there. Um, hmm. And uh, even more peculiarly, I I decided I wanted to drive a school bus. And so I went for the training, and uh, as a side footnote altogether, the training was a very effective training. They showed us film after film after film of school buses overturning and being hit by trains. That was pretty effective training uh, right there. But I, I received the, um, um, I would, being a northerner by birth, I would say, I was given my route to follow. Being a southerner, I've learned it's a route to drive. Uh, so I drove my route, and on my route, I would pick up, uh, uh, oh, about a 15-year-old kid who was, unfortunately, he was, he was significantly mentally impaired and picked on quite a bit. And I made a point of saving the seat right behind me for him so that when I picked him up, he would not have to face the the ridicule that was pretty standard for him to face. 
and I would engage him in conversation. Or he would be asking me questions, and we'd be talking about a variety of things um, as I drove. And one day, he was quite interested in talking about the football game he was sure was going to take place sometime soon this fall, he said. And we were members of the Daniel High School uh, student body in, uh, near Clemson, South Carolina. And uh, we were the Lions, the Daniel Lions. And, and our, my little friend here, uh, um, Randy, was looking very much forward to the match between the Daniel Lions and the Dallas Cowboys. He said, Randy did, that he thought that we could give them a pretty good fight. He even thought we might be able to sneak a win. But there, there was something wrong, and kids around, of course, were giggling, because there is no way that a high school team could stand the force of a professional team like the Cowboys. I must remind you, this was back in the day that they had any value at all. Sorry to say that. <clears throat> But in a sense, I want to suggest to you that he was on to something that I want to point out here. Would you know that when you put the Daniel Lions and the Dallas Cowboys on the same football field, they are diametrically opposed to each other. They are pushing completely in opposite directions. The Lions want to go there, and the Cowboys want to go there. The fact of opposition says nothing about the, about the relative power the two forces that are on the field. And that is the case here. And that is the case why Paul can so confidently be saying, if you give yourself over to the Spirit, you will not be fulfilling the desires of the flesh. There is a simplification to the battle here. We can focus upon walking according to the Spirit. There's a second simplicity uh, that comes when we read through the lists here. There is a list of the fruit of the Spirit, and there is a list of the works of the flesh. We are already aware, we should be, that these lists are, relative, that these lists are actually open-ended because in both cases, we're, we're, uh, Paul speaks of, and such things. And there's your dot, 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 etc. open door. Who knows how long the lists could be? Um, Philo the Jewish philosopher of Jesus and Paul's day, roughly, had such a virtue-vice list that was somewhere around 140 elements in it. Um, that would be quite an agenda for spiritual formation, wouldn't it? Tracking down all of those different elements here. And uh, you and I are familiar with, I was born and raised in the church, went to a number of vacation Bible schools, and so you, like I, probably have somewhere in your memory that purple cluster of grapes on the wall, the nine big, round, luscious grapes, each one of them representing one fruit of the Spirit. And so we, our language actually slipped in that direction. These are the fruits of the Spirit, and then each one analyzed individually and separately. There is no harm in that. There is no heresy in that. Keep doing it. We do it all the time. Each one is to be, uh, of course, uh, studied and valued for its own, in its own way. But there has been a really impressive consensus merge, uh, emerging over really the last several decades in Pauline studies that it's quite clear when you consider all of Paul's message that love is not simply the first element in the list. Love is the comprehensive 
whole of the list. Love captures it all. And one little clue you can get is that when you go down this list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians and then cross over to 1 Corinthians 13 and read what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not boastful or jealous. Love is not arrogant and rude. Love does not, may I add, divisively insist on its own way. It is not irritable, not resentful, etc., etc. We We get, I think, help from 1 Corinthians 13 and a variety of other sources to bring this to this, I think, a simplifying conclusion. And that is that however many other virtues and graces there are, they all tumble out of and are expressions of love reigning and ruling in the heart. A person saturated with divine love is a person who is kind. Uh, A person who is saturated by divine love is a person who needs not uh, toot his own horn and make his own case and create all kinds of self-attention. The beauty of this is the simplicity of the call. Walk according to the Spirit, and guess what? Um, The fruit of the Spirit, love, will be infused into our hearts and all that follows, follows from love. How wonderful and refreshing is that simplicity. Well, I want to move on to a third simplicity. Not only is this, a, is there a simplicity of the war? In a sense, it's a unidirectional war. And there's a simplicity in the goal, that is, that we become filled with and saturated by God's own love. But there's also a simplicity in the source from which this comes. Notice, and sometimes we simply fail to notice the most obvious things in the text, and that is the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit's fruit. This is something the Spirit does. This is something that the Holy Spirit produces, pouring into and out of us these uh, beautiful dimensions, love and its beautiful dimensions. It's the Spirit's job, and only God can do this. Now this, of course, dumps us right into a long-term debate across the history of the church in which all Christians, I think, in one way or another, struggle with how to relate divine action with human action, right? God does things, we say, but then we say, but we've got to do some things too, right? Now, I want to offer you a, uh, a thumbnail sketch that I think can be helpful. I think there are only three logical possibilities, none of which is adequate. First of all, there is the what we'll call divine monergism option, where God does it all. God does everything. And some of our friends who are heavy into defending the sovereignty of God uh, defend it in such a way that says that even the decisions that we make, even when we think we're choosing and walking and making choices along the way, we're not actually doing that. God has actually already planted that in our hearts and made us choose those things. And so overall, it really, God is the only actor, God is the only agent in every aspect of the Christian life. It's God's show, 
And this is the way to honor God, is to claim that that's how it works. Now, we're not going to take that question up, except I'll simply say that it takes untangling passage after passage and decoding chapter after chapter after book after book of the Bible from cover to cover to end up with a view, in my understanding of it, that basically says God is the only actor. We're being called upon over and over again, all the way through, as moral creatures somehow, to respond in the right way to God. The other option, the second option, is we'll call it the human monergism option. And we actually participate in this more than I think we think. Uh, We think that, um, well, you've heard this expression, God helps those who help help themselves. Or, or, Or better yet, we say, God has given us a command. It's our job, it's our job to do what God has called us to do. And so, under the banner, you might say, of responsibility, uh, we take upon ourselves the job of fixing ourselves. We take upon ourselves the job of creating these virtues within us. Um, The question I have is, can we really actually, on our own, create these virtues? The impression I get sometimes is that we tell ourselves that, yes, we can. What we can do is we can stick our toe into an icy stream, and once that's acclimated, we'll stick a second toe in. And once that's acclimated, we'll stick a third toe in. Before you know it, we'll be in the stream, and all will be well. Or we can create certain habits that over time will create all the virtues uh, within our whole person and our whole uh, behavior and our, our, our whole ministry, you might say, all the virtues are manageable, producible by, let's say, tweaking all of our behaviors and circumstances appropriately over time. We become the persons of love. Um, I would just simply say that the Bible speaks also of human ineptitude, of the pervasiveness of sin, of the twisted heart, the twisted mind, blind eyes. And this is not all erased with the snap of a finger in the waters of baptism. Uh, We are helpless and hopeless uh, apart from God, even as we have been infused with the spirit of life and belong to Christ Jesus. The third option, that is of a divine and human cooperative deal, where God does his job and we do our job. Um, I mentioned earlier this expression, God helps those who help themselves. According to a Barna poll, among American high school seniors, I think this is how it goes, nearly 80% of those seniors believed, first of all, that that verse was in the Bible. Of course, it's not. And secondly, they believed that that verse actually summarized the entire message of the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Um, I find this to be uh, unsatisfying in a more troubling way than you might imagine. And that what it really implies is that we take it up a certain percentage. And whatever that percentage is, it doesn't matter to me name it, whether it's 5, 10, 15, or 50. And then God comes down and sort of finishes the rest of it out. And so the implication as I would see it is that the, the net effect is that we deserve that proportion of praise. 
for whatever it is that's accomplished in this great work that we've participated in. So if these are the only three logical options, you might say God works alone, we work alone, um, and we partner with God in a percentage deal. If these three options don't work, what works? What is likely the truth? And here I want to swing us back around to something that we have spent quite a bit of time with here on this campus in a recent year, and that is the means of grace. And Mr. Wesley's amazingly perceptive insight into this, he's not alone, but he helps in a peculiar way to help us understand this, and I think that the story of the wedding of Cana is one of the, one of the nicest curtains pulled back visions of how this happens. We have Jesus coming to a wedding where there's a need. He's being called upon, in essence, to perform a miracle. And he has three options before him, the logical ones. He works alone, where Jesus just shows up and points to those, not, to those empty vessels, nods his head, and they are full of wine, end of story. That would be divine monergism. Um, human monergism would be if God came, or if Jesus came and said, you know what, God has given you all uh, minds and brains. It's your job to figure this out. Uh, work at it. Uh, the third option, the synergism, would be something like God saying, or Jesus saying, uh, I'll be happy to do what you can't, but I would like you to turn at least 10% of this water into wine. And at that point, I'll step in and I'll do the rest of the conversion as needed. And of course, as we know, nothing like that happens. What happens? What happens is something very peculiar and illuminating. Jesus asks some people to do some heavy-duty work, carrying water. Have you carried water ever? It's one of the heaviest things that you can carry, uh, and apparently some distance, and apparently it would require organization and determination and follow-through and discipline, and yes, all of those things. But the question we can ask at the end is that when those vessels are full of water, how much of that miracle has been accomplished? And the answer you know. Zero percent. Not one molecule of water has been turned into wine. What we find is that Jesus comes and says, here is a way I want you to walk. This is what I want you to do. But then Jesus comes over top of all of that, sweeps up our work into his work, and does the miracle that we would say comes from him. And I think that Wesley's words here are very helpful in his sermon on the means of grace when near the end of the sermon, actually in the, in the middle of it as well, he, he mentions these, this pathway that God has called us to walk in to, the, to specify the kinds of behaviors that we are to be employed in. Saturation with prayer. Saturation in the scripture. Saturation in a worshiping, serving community. And devotion to the care of the weak and poor. Those are the pathways. Wesley is careful to say, there is no merit in them at all. Wesley is careful to say, and this is where I find myself swallowing hard, there is no power in them either. And once we see no merit, no power, but a pathway to walk in, there I think we're into a fourth option that is a biblical vision of what I would call the means of grace. Does God do it all? Yes. <laughs> where, do these, where do these virtues come from? They are from the Spirit. And yet are we called to live 
uh, within a pathway set before us? Yes, we are, but without merit and without power in those behaviors. So my suggestion here, my offer to you from this passage in Paul, where the question is, how shall we then live? I want to offer these three simplicities. And I want to call us into a simplified, but I think biblical and scripturally insightful way of walking. We need, brothers and sisters, to adopt the robust optimism of this passage. We are not called into a never-ending kind of stalemate with failure and sin. We're being invited on into a life of victory and hope and joy. Yes. And we may need to goad ourselves a little bit with the warning that we find buried in this passage where he, Paul says, and I say to you, I remind you what I told you before when I visited you first, that those who live this way, works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is Paul the Apostle writing within this epistle, this Galatians epistle, this Magna Carta of freedom. He's telling us that there is a way to live that is necessary for us to live in. But necessity means God has provided a way, a means, and there is with God great simplicity. And in the end, in the end, the amazing unthinkable possibility is that we share in divine likeness. God is love. And therefore, to walk in the Spirit and to allow ourselves to be infused with all that the Spirit would bring to us will be to become people filled with God's love. May God bless us as we seek his face and name and seek to walk accordingly.